0: Hello and welcome to another episode of God's Own Scale. Thank you for joining me. This is a special one as it's my first transatlantic interview talking to Greg Wagman from Little Wars TV. We talk about his hobby background, his club, six mil gaming and of course about Little Wars TV itself. If you haven't checked out Little Wars TV, I highly recommend you do so and make sure it's the first thing that you do after listening to this episode. It's an incredible channel covering historical gaming, lots of 6mm content, but also other scales as well as some naval gaming too. Greg was a gracious and eloquent guest and I'm sure you're going to enjoy what he has to say. Before we move on to the interview proper, a small plug. For the War Games website, this is a new website to me, well worth checking out. It's a friendly and informative page that's got all the latest hobby news, plus a great forum for you to engage with each other on. I've just started using it and results are so far very good. You can find that at www.thewargameswebsite.com Thank you to everyone who said how much they enjoyed me reading Dulce e Decorum Est. At the end of the last episode. To be honest it was on a bit of a whim. And my inner thespian was satisfied at the result. I'm not sure I'll make it a regular feature. Or even repeat it at all. I know there's some encouragement for other possible recitals. But I'm not sure my diction and dialect. are up to a Shakespearean soliloquy just yet. Never say never though. Okay enough of me wittering on. You've come to listen to Greg. So without further ado. Let's talk about six.
1: Mademoiselle from Armadale, I do. Mademoiselle from Armadale, say to you, singing with all your heart and soul and see everyone arrive up the ball.
0: Mademoiselle from
1: Armadale.
2: I'm puppy sitting this weekend. And uh, the, the the puppy is sitting here next to me, so hopefully he'll be he'll behave and he'll be quiet. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, he's welcome to uh, make comments if uh, if he hears something he wants to. Talk. Yeah, I don't
2: I don't know that he's much of a war gamer.
0: But, uh, okay,
2: okay, but hopefully he'll be behaved as well.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, okay, so um, I'm really pleased, excited, and uh, grateful to be joined by mr greg wagman from little wars tv hello greg how are you
2: hello sean thank you so much for setting this up i've been i've uh, been a fan of your young podcast
0: yes yes it's 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 very young it's uh, a bit like the puppy that you've got next to you i guess it's, yeah. it's very yeah. excitable <laughs> <laughs> i'm prone to go off te- uh, in any direction i guess <laughs>
2: yes 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 well let's hope that the puppy and the podcast behave today so yes
0: let's hope let's hope so you're you're puppy sitting then what what sort of puppy is it
2: Uh, he's a border collie he's he's four months old Uh, my wife's friends had to go out of town for a wedding so they they dropped him off for a long holiday weekend here
0: excellent well welcome to the podcast both
2: (laughs) yes thank you very much
0: (laughs) with the uh, time zone difference I'm very grateful Greg that uh, you've got up early on this uh, this Sunday morning to speak to me I was absolutely willing to say up into the wee small hours over here to fit in with yourself but uh, thank you for rising early i hope you've had a good breakfast and a cup of coffee
1: <laughs>
2: a cup of coffee yes that's yeah like
0: so uh, greg you're fairly well known over in these parts certainly around my gaming group and around the wargaming community with various aspects of uh, input that you've had with the uh, rules writing Uh, and Little Wars TV, both of which hopefully we're going to get into shortly. But I I wondered if we could just start with a little bit about who Greg Wagman is and your gaming biography.
2: Sure. Yes. Well, uh, the gaming biography begins around age 12. That was when a friend of mine introduced me to Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, So that was the very first war game that I ever played, and uh, he actually, that friend, appears on Little Wars TV. I still game with him from time to time. He's still a member of the club. His name is Zach. He was in a number of episodes. We went to school together, and uh, I don't know when he discovered Warhammer, but it was certainly well before that, and what an eye-opening experience. You know, you're 12 years old. I love playing with toy soldiers, and he says, hey, you know, there's a game that we can play with these things.
0: Uh, so he got a whole
2: bunch of us into it. We had a group of probably ten friends in middle school and high school that were into playing Warhammer and uh that was that was my first foray into the hobby but it it didn't last too long for me uh because I was always more interested in historical wargaming and when I discovered that there was such a thing as historical wargaming, which took actually a couple of years <laughs> then right. uh, i I never really looked back after that
0: <laughs> it's It's odd, isn't it that- The world over that warhammer fantasy and games workshop in general does seem to be that gateway drug that leads us in and then particularly if you've got an interest in history then it's not always easy as a a young guy like yourself that you would have been perhaps 14 years of age to then cross over into historical gaming so how, how did that go about
2: Yes, uh, that actually came about by accident. I was at the local comic book shop buying some wildly overpriced GW figures, and in the in the painting case in the front of the room uh, uh, of the store, there was a shelf that had some World War II Germans and Americans on it. They had been painted 28 millimeter and left there by somebody I didn't know, but they were in the display case. So I asked the owner, "Hey, well, what, you know what's this? This is the first time I had ever seen." Historical miniatures in my life, and he said uh, there there's two guys here. They they get together once a week and they play World War II war games. And I said, oh my gosh, do you think I could come? And he said, well sure, you know they're they're here every Wednesday at you know six o'clock. So of course I couldn't even drive at that point. I wasn't old enough to drive. So my parents came and dropped me off with these like middle aged men. They were probably not happy to see a 14 year old show up because I was about 14 at that point. Yeah. Uh, But they were very kind, very gracious. They allowed me to sit and watch the game. And I just kept coming back, probably to their horror. Uh, And uh, it wasn't long before, you know, I was buying World War II miniatures. And and that was actually, that was the start of our wargaming club. Those two guys that I met when I was 14 with Chow and Keith. Chal and Keith are still members of the club now. They helped to build the club, and that that was how it all started for me and for the club, all, all at the same time. It was just a really happy accident. I would have never found it if it hadn't been for those miniatures in the case.
0: Yeah, it's these uh, these moments of chance that come along in our lives and guide us for the rest of, rest of our lives. Really, I guess I, I had a similar. It's not too dissimilar to what uh, you've just described there with my own history, really. But yeah, I guess as that 14-year-old coming along and pestering these two guys are uh, doing the serious <laughs> gaming.
2: <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. That it's a point worth making, though, because they, they just as easily could have brushed me off or not been friendly or told me not to come back. There are any number of ways that they could have assured themselves that I wouldn't have showed up again. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of gamers in this hobby that probably would have reacted that way. Yeah. It's not always the friendliest hobby. That's something that I hear from a lot of new players now that I've been in the game for a while, and I think it's so important, it is so critically vital for the future of the hobby that anybody, you know, listening to this, listen, put up with a new guy, okay? You know, be, be welcoming. You never know what's going to happen, and if you, if you shoo people away or you don't want to include them in your games, and I know sometimes it's a hassle, that, that's... That's just going to steer people away from the hobby, and we need to be doing everything we can to bring people in at this point.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great hobby. That's, uh, that's it's become a bit of a cliche, but I think it's it's true. Certainly it on is. this side of the Atlantic, I, I don't know what it's like on yours, Greg.
2: It's it's true. It's true here as well. Uh, you know, we we were fortunate enough to be able to work with Jasper at uh, WSS Magazine and look at five years of past data on the Great Wargaming Survey, which as of the time you and I are recording this podcast, will have, I think, just ended today. They had their greatest response rate ever this year. Yeah. This is their sixth year on the survey, but there's lots of good news in the survey. There were lots of really positive trends that we were able to discern over five years, but one of them is, is the graying of the hobby. It's happening on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's happening a little bit faster than people probably want to admit.
0: Yeah. It's a really interesting point because whilst... People of a certain age, as I am, and, and I'm not sure how old I'm, I'm you are. I'm 33 though. at this point. Okay, well, you're considerably younger than me then. <laughs> I'm a young buck in this hobby. You yeah. are a young buck, yeah, yeah. But even so, it is important that we see the people coming on behind us to hand that baton over to. The club that I belong to has been in existence for nearly 50 years. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, 19, round about 1971, 72. Um, unfortunately throughout the history of the club we've had two or three teachers uh, who've been long-term <laughs> members and they've brought along students that's brilliant that's a great theirs. idea yeah yeah but that, that's uh, that's probably a unique situation isn't it the way That we've got that easy pool to tap into uh, to create the, the next generation but yeah the, the war games um, the great war games survey has been a great tool I think isn't it for us to look at uh, where the hobby is
2: It is. It is. And, you know, even though there are some concerning aspects of the survey, particularly around the graying of the hobby, I mean, it's that's no reason for anybody to be defeatist. You know, if you if you spend too much time on places like TMP, you know, the miniature page online, it's easy to um, it's easy to get a, a pessimistic view of the future of the hobby. But, um, you know, it, listen, it's up to it's up to people like you and me and anybody who's on YouTube or making a podcast uh, or in the magazine world to say, hey, listen, what are we going to do about it? You know, there's there's no reason to surrender. I, I think there's lots of room for optimism and science for growth in the hobby. Actually, funny, we should be on a six millimeter podcast because I think that six millimeter is a big part of the future of the hobby and where things could go in a positive direction. I think there's a lot of. Attractive elements of that scale that are, that could be used to lure in new players.
0: Excellent. Well, we'll perhaps get on touch on that a little bit later then, Greg. Yeah. So your gaming buyer uh, then you you're along at this comic store. You get in with the couple of guys there playing World War II, and you're hooked from the first moment. And you said you bought some World War II figures. Was World War II your main period? Would you say?
2: That was pretty much the only period at the club for a matter of at least five years. We, we, we played a little bit of 15-millimeter Napoleonics. There, was, there were a couple guys in the club who were into that. I was into it as well. But for the most part, we were a World War II club, 28-millimeter uh, skirmish World War II. Eventually, we branched out into 15-millimeter World War II. But for years, that is all we did every single Monday. And uh, the lesson, the takeaway that I had for that, even though the club was growing, is that uh, the foundation of a good, healthy wargaming club is not built on one period. There's always guys who have different interests, and you need to stoke those fires and feed and yeah. those interests. And the club today, 20 years later, has evolved to the point where, oh my gosh, I mean, we... It's hard to tell you a period we don't war game at this point.
0: <laughs> right, yes. I but
2: assume that, your club is the same way. I mean, are you guys sort of all over the board in the interests and genres that you play?
0: Absolutely, yes. We've we've been very lucky for the vast majority of the history of the club that we've had permanent premises. Yes. Yeah, which um, it, it essentially was seven or eight rooms above a hardware store that we hired and had 365 days a year access which meant that collections of figures and books and scenery etc could be kept there and everything from fantasy, warhammer fantasy battle through 40k to ancient history through to uh vietnam war and modern wars uh, beyond that so yeah it's it's always been a club that if you came to and you've got an interest in any period of history or any genre of fantasy or science fiction there was a game for you but you're right that we, we've been in a very lucky position. Very recently in the last month or so, we've lost that premises because the owner uh, has retired and then sold the premises onto developers. Ah. Um, but f- and we've scoured the city far and wide for new premises uh, at an equal, at a similar price to what we were paying. Couldn't find anything. Mm. Uh, and we're on the verge of going into extinction when um, a guy who owns a um, a car sales plot uh, literally 50 feet from the front door of our old premises has uh, said I, i've got this old nissan hut this this uh, sort of <laughs> corrugated hut which you can use uh, for the same price so we've moved 50 feet absolutely yeah Help helped with the uh, transportation uh so uh, world war ii then so a lot of skirmish gaming what uh, what rules were you using for that
2: our club was the club that uh, Chow and Keith were the authors of Disposable Heroes. Um, so we were the development and playtest club for that, and we almost exclusively played Disposable Heroes for for five years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, back at that time, that was, you know, they wrote that rule set right around 2000, I would say, and were developing it a little bit before then. There, there really weren't a whole lot of great World War II skirmish options. You know, we're well before the days of bold action and chain of command and some of the other popular systems that have come up since. And they did really well with Disposable Heroes. They actually built a whole publishing company around it. Uh, they sold thousands and thousands of copies of that rule set wow. back, in, back in the early 2000s. Um, it, was, it was a great role set, I'm actually. We still uh, we still play some DH today, but there's just not as much time for it because we're playing so many other games.
0: Yeah, so little time and so much to do.
2: It's a good problem to have in this hobby. We're all yeah. spoiled for choice now, maybe a little too much choice at times.
0: Yes, yeah. Was that um, Iron Ivan? Am I right in thinking it was Iron Ivan?
2: You, you, your, your memory serves you well. That was the name of the company, Iron Ivan Games.
0: Yes. I'm certainly aware of them. It's not a set that I've ever played, but I've I've seen the review on uh, Little Wars TV, so it's something that I think we're going to be picking up fairly soon, actually. So, what,
2: what do you guys primarily play for, you know, 28mm skirmish? Chain of Command Club or Bolt Action?
0: Or... Bolt bolt Action's very popular. I've tried to introduce Chain of Command very well this year, actually, uh, but Bolt Action has, has got quite a, a, a strong following within the club probably a dozen or more guys will play that on a on a fairly regular basis we have between 40 and 50 members
2: um, that's
0: a lot yeah yeah uh, over the court it dips and fluctuates and grows at various points but uh yes yeah, so bolt action has been the primary skirmish world war ii game um but we're always looking for that next thing uh so chain of command is something <laughs> I've, I've tried to introduce but uh, after your review of disposable heroes we uh we've discussed that and it's on the radar for us i think to pick up uh, sure. yeah no, it's
2: it's fun to try different rule sets i think they all you know we're rules junkies here i think a lot of wargamers are and they, they all have their strengths and weaknesses you know parts that you love and parts that you you know you aren't as big of a fan of and that's what leads people to go out and write their own rules right everybody's sort of stealing the it's best good. bits that they like and cobbling them together and it's it's a great creative process i think it's yeah. One of the fun things about
0: the hobby. Yeah, I think as Wargamers, the world over. Um, we're, you're right, we are rules junkies. Most of us have got more rules than we will ever play That's right. <laughs> uh, in our lifetime. Um, and, and even if you find that perfect set of rules, there'll always be somebody that wants to tweak it or add a modifier or, or change something around. And uh, yeah, that, that, that is the great aspect of the hobby, isn't it? The creativity that uh, we see within the hobby, I think.
2: Yeah, that, that's, how new, that's how new developments occur. I mean, even, even Disposable Heroes back in 2000, you know, Keith, I know, built part of that system off of Warhammer 40K. Right. Uh, he was a big 40K fan, so he was sort of cherry-picking a couple elements that he liked from that. and you know, that's, that's how the creative process works.
0: So you mentioned your club has been going for around about 20 years now, but it was initially yourself and these two guys. How, how did it grow from three of you playing World War II? in a comic store <laughs> to being where you are now in what looks like the absolute mecca of war gaming. It looks like a fantastic clubhouse you've got.
2: It, the, the, yeah, the, the, the war room, as we call it now, is, is amazing. But actually, starting off in the comic store was a great place to start because it gave us some visibility. I mean, I, I would have never found those guys if it hadn't been for the comic store. And sure. that is how we got a lot of our early members. Guys would walk in. They'd look at miniatures in the case, or or they would show up on the evening that we were back there gaming in the back room of the store, um, and that that comic book shop charged us no money uh, in order to be there. It was just we, we were allowed to game on Wednesday night, and of course you know every other night of the week they had you know Warhammer, Magic the Gathering, board games, I and mean, that's you know that's what the comic book shop does. Yes, but they they gave us a home for many many years. We were there for well over ten years. And members would sort of slowly filter in that way. Or, you know, you'd invite a buddy, try to get a friend to come. It was a very slow growth process the, the club took a while, actually, to kind of really find its footing. And it, it wasn't until, I, w- I would say, after a decade that we were up to maybe maybe 20 members, uh, 10 of whom or less would come on a given night. The transition to the, the war room where we are now is something we were actually quite worried about. Um, there was a lot of talk. We knew it was going to be a great gaming space for us, but there was a lot of talk that it might lead to the death of the club because we were going to be in a private space. Uh, no no one would be able to find us. <laughs> yes. Uh, and that was a legitimate concern. It, it Luckily, it did not pan out that way. We did not lose any members. We would, you know, gain a member here or there. And honestly, what really blew the lid off the club was Little Wars TV. Yeah, uh, that is that is not what we intended we weren't thinking of it as a recruitment tool
0: <laughs> by yes. any
2: means but uh it's funny you know you you put yourself out there on the internet and all of a sudden people are messaging you and leaving comments hey where are you guys you know could i could mm-hmm. i come and game with you <laughs> we've picked up several members just within the last year uh, from the youtube channel so my advice to anybody listening to this who has a wargaming club is Make a couple of YouTube videos, you know. Let yeah. let people know you're out there, even if you can't put the the time or the production value in that we try to put in at Little Wars TV. Just make one or two. People will find you. Uh, you you'd be surprised. We have guys who will drive two hours to get to the club one way.
0: Wow, that's incredible. People in in the UK are pretty much loath to drive more than half an hour anywhere
2: (laughs) yeah well your geography is a little bit different there
0: yeah slightly slightly i'll agree
2: (laughs) you you, you've got a lot more war gamers on a much smaller island
0: that's Uh, right and what
2: we have over here guys here sort of unfortunately have to drive it's one of the challenges to the growth of the hobby here in the united states is that we're all so spread apart you know there's there's probably no more gamers here than there are in the uk but you guys are so much closer together and it's uh You've got shows all the time. We're always jealous over here. We talk about yeah. how, oh, in the UK, they have like a show every weekend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. I
2: mean, we, we have like, you know, three or four a year, uh, if, yeah. if you're willing to drive a couple hours to get to them. So it's a, it's a totally different, uh, it's a different hobbying atmosphere over here and it presents its own, its own challenges.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I've never been to um, a show in the States. Uh, I've had friends who've, who've been over to Historic and I've got a friend who's just moved to uh, just outside Boston, actually, and uh, he, he, tra- he travels to Historica. But they they are far more um, gaming experiences, uh, from what I can see. Shows in the UK tend to be trade shows. and right. There are demonstration and there are participation games as well. But people don't typically travel to a show to play a game they'll they'll wander around spend the money on whatever it is uh they want to buy but they'll look at these gorgeous demonstration games they might sit down for half an hour to roll dice on a on a quick participation game but they certainly don't travel to a show to sit down for two or three hours and and play through a game in its entirety which i think uh seems to be the norm in the states
2: it's definitely the norm here and honestly it wasn't for many many years that i realized that that's not how it is in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it sounds like a completely different uh, convention experience. I have never been to a UK convention. A couple guys from our club have they've been over to salute yeah. um, and one or two of the others. And it, it definitely sounds like more of a shopping trip, basically, yeah. which, hey, listen, I'm, <laughs> that sounds fine to me. You know, I'm <laughs> happy to go and buy, uh, spend all my money on a bunch of miniatures at the show. So there's yeah. there's shopping that happens here at the U.S., uh, conventions as well, Historicon's got a large number of vendors, but uh, people come to play the games, that's for sure. It's, yeah. it's almost entirely a participation game event. I, I found it almost comical when uh, Jasper was over, he came to the United States this year, actually, for family reasons, and he got to stop at our club. And uh, he was telling us that, you know, oh, over over in Europe, you know, they set up these beautiful demonstration games where you just you just look at them. You, know, you just walk by and just walk by and look at them, and I'm like, "What are you talking about? What do you mean you look at them? <laughs> no one's playing the game, oh no no no, 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 no one's playing <laughs> that's, it, just, it it seemed crazy to me
0: that that's not quite true what What will happen is that um a local club will uh apply to put on a demonstration game at the shows, and they will play the game themselves and what and, you watch them play, and you watch the yes, yeah, so um Okay, it can get a little political, this point can now, Greg, to be honest, and amongst the show scene. I'm sorry the...
2: to put you on thin ice here, Sean.
0: Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. This is a positivity podcast. We, uh, we don't, yes, uh, I've we heard don't that. do negatives. I have heard that yet. <laughs> but but um, there's been very recent discussion across Twitter about the role of this demonstration game, this, this, where the paying customer will turn up at a show uh, to look. At another club's game mm-hmm. and watch them playing it. So there's, there's two aspects to that. There can be the aspect where the club puts the game on and is willing to talk to the bystander and say, Yeah, th- these rules are great. We, we, we use these rules because uh, of such and such, or we, we collect the figures from here, we build the scenery like this. Uh, this is the history that this game is portraying. So you've got that interaction aspect. Uh, which is, the, I think, the true meaning of the word of demonstration, that you're demonstrating to the bystander how to recreate this period, how to get the figures, how to build the scenery. And then there's the other side of the coin where it has been seen and commented on in the past where clubs will turn up at, at a big show like Partisan, which is, is one of the biggest mm-hmm. shows that we have here, uh, or Salute. Um, and just see it as an opportunity for their club to put on a huge game and just show their backs to the bystanders and not turn around <laughs> and engage, engage with them at all. And it's almost as though the bystander is getting in the way of them playing this this large game. So, um, yeah, it, I, I can see how that will appear incredibly odd <laughs> uh, for you because I, I think it boils down to the fact that we have so many shows. There's a show today taking place in in Peterborough um sort of South Midlands I guess if you look at the map of the UK you guys are spoiled over there
2: you're so spoiled
0: (laughs) we are we are and it's something that um I don't think we appreciate sometimes in the fact that we can there's probably two or three shows every month of the year that we could go to I I live roughly slap bang in the middle of the UK so Two hours in any direction will get me to any number of shows most weekends of the month. Um, whereas, as you say for yourselves, uh, to go to Cold Wars or Fall In or Historicon or any of the other smaller historical shows, um, you are talking a long drive, aren't you? Some people I know fly, don't they? Um, they do. Yeah.
2: We had, his, we had Historicon, you know, it's every July, and I was talking to some guys who were in a game of mine that I was running, um, a Gettysburg game, and there were some guys there from Colorado. I mean, they they uh-huh. flew across the entire country to get here for this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is just sort of crazy. I can't see myself doing that. but
0: uh, now, It's nuts, isn't it? But that's, that's the geography of the States, isn't it? You it know. is. It you is. Say-
2: if, if you want to do it, that's what you have to do. Something that's sort of only discussed behind closed doors over here is the dwindling convention attendance at, at our three main shows that we have, including Historicon. Yeah. I mean, Historicon used to draw close to 5,000 people back in the I think wow. it was like the late the late 90s, mm-hmm. and now we're down 2,500, maybe even a little less. Um, and you know, there are a lot of reasons I think for that, but. We I think we need to get a little bit more creative here in the states about the way that we run these shows and what we're what we're actually doing at them in order to get people excited again to to get those attendance numbers back up because there's there's definitely appetite here I mean there there we could easily double the attendance at those conventions but they've been run the same way for 30 years um, and you know I think I think some new thinking in that dimension would help and this is something that you know Peter had mentioned I really enjoyed the podcast you did with. With Peter from Bacchus, and you. you know, you guys were talking about how even over in the UK, you know, some conventions that stood still ended up dying out. Yeah, and yeah, that's something that we're hoping to avoid over here because we can't afford to lose any conventions. <laughs> we don't have as many as you do. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, you're right. Over here, I first started traveling to shows probably around about 1990, I would say, so 20, close on 30 years ago, and there have been peaks and troughs in, in the number of shows as well. So literally back then in the early nineties, there was a show every single weekend that you could go to, but it doesn't mean there's more variety almost because you tend to see the same games and the same traders and the same faces sure. week after week or month after month as it is now. Um, whereas my impression of the shows that what's the organization, the historical hwgs is it yeah hmgs hmgs miniatures
2: gaming society they they pretty we're in the unique situation here in the u.s where they sort of organize all the big shows there are like clubs that'll do small regional shows where you know a few hundred people will show up but the the big conventions are all run by one non-profit organization
0: yeah there's historic on falling cold wars is there any more that they run
2: uh, that's what the main HMGS affiliate runs, but there are also like HMGS Midwest runs Cold uh, Wars out in Chicago, and there's a there's a South and a West Coast affiliate yeah. that do a show as well.
0: But they they are few and far between, aren't they? Over the, over yeah. a twelve month calendar, uh, there's far fewer opportunities for you as a a paying customer or. Uh, a games master or a guy who wants to go along to a show to play a game, there's far fewer opportunities. And I think, as Peter was alluding to in the last podcast, the shows here do need to diversify, do need to look to offer something else to the paying customer because going along to to a show for me as a shopping experience is great because I'll pick up the figures for a new project or some scenery or a book or a, a rule set or whatever. But really, I could probably do that in a couple of hours and go home. What's going to keep me at that show beyond midday or beyond two o'clock? As, as Peter mentioned, these shows can kind of die out very quickly in the afternoon and traders start packing up early and,
1: right. and the
0: whole thing folds, you know, around about three o'clock. But as Peter did at the Joy of Six, which if ever you get the chance to come over, Greg, to the to the UK, I've got a guest room here. <laughs> We wouldn't need any accommodation. We could travel uh, up there together. Uh, that, uh, that,
2: that's, my number, that's number one on my bucket list if I can ever get to a show in the UK. It's not mm-hmm. Salute or any of the other big shows. I, I would love to get to Joy of Six.
0: Well, you get the flight, Greg. Um, I've, got the, I've got the accommodation for you. That's not a problem. But um, what he does with the Joy of Six, uh, with the seminars, where there's a question and answer with the backers team, and then in the afternoon a more of a panel type discussion it it just breaks up the day and gives adds that little bit of extra interest to the paying customer um on top of these wonderful display games that i'm sure you will have seen photographs oh, yeah. across the net uh, just incredible display games and a lot of them being participation games which isn't the norm in the uk so a lot of the games were participation games and even the demonstration games were games that um they weren't closed to you. Ru- Going up to the table and, and playing a couple of turns and throwing some dice and moving some figures. So, uh, th- that as a model going forward, I think, is something that a lot of the UK show scene could learn from. However, I'm not sure how we've rambled on about uh, Wargames. <laughs> Sorry, cheery off right there. <laughs> no, no, we love, we, I, I love a good diversion, Greg. <laughs> like, like I, I'm sure, like yourself, um, I just love talking about this hobby. This hobby is a huge part of my life. And to talk with fellow enthusiasts uh, about it is great, and it, it's absolutely not a chore. So I'm more conscious of taking your time and uh, the puppy that's probably uh, begging for a, some food or a walk. I don't know.
2: He's, he's been laying here uh, remarkably still. So let's, oh. uh, let's hope that continues.
0: So um, just just finishing up on the club then, uh, Greg, on um, the uh, the premises that you've got. Is that is that owned by the club? Is it permanent premises?
2: Yeah. It, it, it is a permanent premises. Um, it's it's actually owned by me. Uh, my real life job is I'm a, a real estate investor and a developer. And I found this building. It was relatively cheap purchase and it had, um, it had four available spaces in it. It had two residential spaces and two commercial spaces. So when I bought the building, I ran the numbers to work out so that essentially the the rent from the other three spaces would help to pay the cost for our club to occupy the fourth. So, um, the, you know, the club does not really make any money, but it, it, it runs at a break even and it's owned by me, a member of the club. So we're, we don't have to worry about losing our space the way that, that you guys did after all those years. Yeah. Um, and in order to get the space renovated, all the guys in the club pitched in their time. And we had like a a two week blitz through there where we, we painted and we built the bar and, you know, put up all the new lighting and built the bookcases and you know guys were very generous about contributing their time and getting it renovated into the state that you see now
0: it it just looks incredible i know there's a video or there's certainly a a blog entry on on the website about how you went about renovating that space into the gaming area that you've got now but it, it it I am very jealous.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is it's it is a dream kind of space, and it was yeah. fun designing it specifically for wargaming. So there's lots of little things that you can do when you know that you're you're going to be using a space for wargaming. I'll give you just one small example, is that around the entire exterior of the, the room, we built a, a rail, like a chair rail that sticks out at, you know, four feet high. But there's a ledge of several inches that comes out of, of yeah. molding. And that ledge allows people to sit miniatures, sit drinks, keep things off the gaming table. And we purposely made that ledge, you know, fairly deep, uh, which for someone who's not gaming, uh, then it would be a bit odd. But for our purposes, uh, doting the club for wargaming, uh, you can do stuff like that.
0: Uh, yeah, it's it's incredible. That uh, I imagine it's fairly unique. I can't think that there's too many other clubs across the world that uh, have got a facility like you have.
2: Haven't found one yet, but I'm hoping that there will be some others. Maybe they can take some inspiration and, and make it happen. Because, as you know from the experience with your club, having a permanent home um, that puts your club on much more solid footing. Yeah. And I, I think it's important, and we've we've seen a lot of growth in our club from doing it. So if uh, if you've got a club out there and you're and you're thinking about it, I, I would recommend trying to get creative and finding a way to make it happen.
0: Okay, so. Uh, I wanted to touch a bit on your rules writing, Greg, because there's certainly one set of rules that I am incredibly fascinated by, the um, Ultra Freedom, and the Age of Hannibal has now come onto my radar as a result of Little Wars TV, so uh, how did you get into the rules writing side of things?
2: Well, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, I think there's a part of every wargamer that dabbles in writing something at one point or another, even if it's just adding a few harmless modifiers to your favorite rule set. Uh, and, and I've always been interested in rules writing. Actually, our club is unique in that we have a, a number of rules authors in the club, um, not not just Chow and uh, and Keith from their Iron Ivan days. So uh, that's always been part of the DNA of the club, playtesting, experimenting. Uh, when you're surrounded by other guys who are doing it, you're more inclined to try it yourself. Uh, but I never envisioned... Actually, I never embarked on the Altar of Freedom project to publish it as a set of rules. That was not the original intent. The, uh, I became very interested in 6mm ACW gaming. That was really the first major 6mm project our club had. And it was out of necessity. It's not because I would, you know, thought, oh, 6mm is such a cool scale. It's just you know, I, I needed to be able to do the Battle of Gettysburg on one table. And we had a lot of 15 millimeter ACW stuff, but you, you, you need such a huge table and so many thousands of figures. I, I didn't want to do part of the battle of Gettysburg. I wanted to do the whole battle. And so that's, that's why I turned to six millimeter and ended up with Bacchus. And of course, now it's my favorite scale and that's sort of a whole separate discussion. But the, the way altar of freedom got started was just by necessity. We, we meet at our club for three hours every week, and I just I needed to find a set of rules where we could do really big Civil War battles, which is what I wanted, in three hours on one table. And we tried a whole bunch of different rule sets. The closest we came to being able to achieve it was a, an old-school set you might be familiar with called Volley and Bayonet. Oh, uh, sure. know, it was written a long time ago, uh, Frank Chadwick, Greg Novak. A great set of rules, and that did allow us to do big battles quickly. But there was something in particular that always bothered me about volley and bayonet. I couldn't stand it. There's no command and control system at all. Yeah. You, if, if you've never played the game, it's you know, I go, you go, each side alternates moving its entire force with no limitations. And it, listen, if you're fighting the Battle of Gettysburg, that is just so deeply unrealistic <laughs> your your battles will never evolve in a historically satisfying way if you're able to do everything you want at the yeah. army scale. These guys don't have radios, okay they can't communicate that way uh so that's that's how the project started i I started fiddling around and trying to figure out how I was going to write my own set to satisfy all these unique club requirements. One table, three hours, big battle. And that's how the ball got rolling. It took about two years in order to develop it.
0: I remember seeing before Little Wars TV uh, became a thing, somebody from your club put up the video of the Battle of Gettysburg. Yes. Uh, under a different uh, channel.
2: That's right. That was actually my, that was a personal channel that I had where I would put up, I told you I'm in the real estate business, I would put up, you know, like before and after videos of some of the houses we've built. Uh, it was mostly just personal stuff, and I, I edited together and put up that Gettysburg video. We actually did another shorter one as well for Second Manassas, yes.
0: and uh, it was
2: just on a lark. I mean, we, we were just having fun playing around with a video camera, but that is actually what provided some of the inspiration for Little Wars TV, was the the success of that video and seeing how fun it was making that video.
0: I'm not sure how many views that video has got. Greg, but it's over.
2: I think the last I checked, and I haven't looked in many months. It, it was well over fifty thousand.
0: Okay, I'm a fair portion of those fifty thousand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're I, I, ruining my statistics. Sean.
0: No, 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 no. I, I, it's got to be over a dozen times I've watched that video, and and the uh, Second Manassas as well, because I am a huge American Civil War fan. It's my, it's my main period. It would be my chosen specialist subject on a, on any game show. um And I've got friends here as well that the ACW features heavily in in their gaming. Um, Is it
2: popular in the UK? Is that a a popular period?
0: It's massively popular, Greg. I would suggest it's more popular than the English Civil War, actually. The only way I can explain that is because we were raised on a diet of Saturday afternoon westerns. And, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, there's very little media around the English Civil War. You might learn a little bit about it at school, but really you've got to go out and find the information around Cavaliers and Roundheads and, and and what the English Civil War meant to this country. But the American Civil War is, I can switch on my TV at pretty much any time of day or night, and I'll find a Western that's based either after the, the story is, you know, a Civil War veteran goes off to his ranch and does whatever... It it's it seems it seems to have permeated the wargamers consciousness more than the English Civil War, in my experience, and certainly when I first went to my club around about 1990, I can remember walking into these these very old crumbly premises that we we've had forever, uh, and walking into one of the rooms where there was ten guys stood around this ten foot by six foot table using Dixon Miniatures 28mm figures <laughs> on, on this rolling, sculpted scenery, all hand-built by one guy uh, who who was the the leader of, of this group, if you like. They always played historical battles. These games would take five or six weeks to play because they'd use an old, a very old computer set of rules on a, I don't know if you have the Spectrum 128K in the, in the states, but you you need to look in your history books, Greg. You're probably far too young to to Maybe know what this my time. Yeah. yeah, what this computer was, but it was the home computer of the day. Let's say in in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, way way before the internet. But the the group of guys around that table, some of which unfortunately have passed away now, but most of those remain friends to this day. And the, the guy who who would run the game, he would paint all the figures, he would build all the scenery, he would umpire these games and set these scenarios up for uh, historical battle. I mean, the joke was that we gained the American Civil War for three times as long as it actually took to fight it. Uh, but we, we would fight every major engagement using these uh, Dixon miniatures figures, which he would hand paint. And improbably, this is really improbable, his name was Jeff Davis. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> I always thought it had a, a, little, uh, a little special something to it all of itself. But he, That explains he, it all. Yeah, absolutely. And he's still gaming the American Civil War to this day in various periods, uh, very scales, sorry, uh, using various sets of rules. But, yeah, so to answer the question, this is a very long answer to a very short question, uh, the American Civil War is huge over here.
2: That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, uh, it, it's certainly extremely popular here, but I think the proximity explains a lot of it. You know, we have so many battlefields that you can visit. I grew up fairly close to the Gettysburg battlefield, so you know, that certainly explains my interest. But uh, yes. interesting to know that, you know, in the UK that guys find it just as fascinating. It's it's my favorite period, and, I, yeah. I came, and I'm interested in many periods, but the Civil War is definitely number one for me.
0: Yeah, and it's the same for me. There's not one period of history that I would not game, And to be honest, I would like to collect virtually every period of history, but we get back to that time issue. Uh, But the Americans of War, if I was to be stranded on a desert island and could just take one period with me on one scale, it would be six mil Americans of War. Probably using Ultra Freedom for the rest of my days. Maybe we'd
2: stumble upon each other on that island. Who knows?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, wouldn't it be terrible if you got stranded with a guy who just wanted to play 28 mil Napoleonics and all you wanted to play six months?
2: (laughs) I'd make do, Sean. I'd make do, but it it wouldn't be heaven. It would be purgatory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, Ultra Freedom took around about two years to write. um, And then, is it self published?
2: Actually, it the only reason it got published at all is because uh, Chow and Keith at that time still had Iron Ivan Games as their publishing company. They had over a dozen games available at that point, and they sort of offered to just release it through Iron Ivan Games. Um, and I thought, well, okay, you know, I never thought I was going to print this, but if these guys are going to sell it and basically do all the work, then why not?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, so they, they ended up releasing the print and, and PDF versions of it through Iron Ivan. Not long after that, they sold Iron Ivan games to Brigade Games here in the United States. Yeah. But I kept, the, uh, I kept ownership of Alter of Freedom. That did not go with Iron Ivan games. And I have continued to sell it on my own, just as a, a print-on-demand and a PDF. And it's, uh, it's, done, it's done remarkably well. It's done far better than I could have ever imagined, that's for sure.
0: I imagine part of that is down to the amount of support that you offer for this rule set. Because the, the the six mil six millimeter acw dot com website has just a wealth of support for this set of rules, isn't it?
2: Yes, yeah, that was intentional on my part. I mean, listen, we were going to play all the battles anyway, so why not take pictures of them and you know put up blog posts about them? That was pretty easy, but it was intentional. That uh, I knew from my own war game experience that. If there are companies that offer better support for their rules, I'm more likely to purchase them and play them and spend time on their websites. You know, uh, Two Fat Lardies is a great example. I mean, yes. my gosh, I don't know how those guys find the time to do everything they do. But, you know, they've got a phenomenal website. And if you're, if you're looking to get into a game, that's a crutch to lean on and, or something to just get you excited about trying the game. So uh, I think some, it's a cottage industry, as you know. Yeah. And not everybody can invest the time to do it, but the guys who do, I think, find a lot more traction.
0: Yeah. So uh, am I right in thinking there's two scenario supplements, one for East and West, which can be purchased?
2: They're correct. There are two. There are only two. and It was very intentional. I, I was always ticked off about the model that Games Workshop has propagated on our hobby, the Curse dribbling out little bits of information, you got to buy all these books, and they're constantly being updated, you got to buy the new book, it's such a scam. I mean, I, I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to do this, there's going to be two massive books, and that's it, you'll get everything you need, and you'll never need to buy anything else
0: yeah and just about every major battle the east and west is covered isn't it in both as, of those as many books. as i
2: could get yeah the, the yeah. books are very very long i think there's 20 battles in each in each book so you can pretty much do every major battle of the war uh off of those books which is that's why i wrote the system that's what i wanted to do it was just a selfish personal hobby
0: and, and let's face it if if that's 40 major battles across both books that's going to keep most clubs going for some time isn't it yeah you don't
2: need to buy anything else (laughs) Uh, uh, if you get through i'm still waiting to hear from the person who has played all 40 so if that's you and you're listening send me an email (laughs) tell me what you're doing with your life
0: (laughs) yes you need to get out more (laughs) you need to get
2: out more really but i'd love to know
0: Um, but on top of that, if if that person does finish those 40 uh, scenarios, you've got to, uh, a couple of campaign books, which are, I think are free, aren't they?
2: Yes. Yeah, those, those are those are totally free. Those are just uh, I put those out years after the rules came out, many years. And it was just uh, I've been overwhelmed by the number of people who have purchased the rules and sent me kind emails about how much they're enjoying it. And I thought, you know, this is this is something I could do for them just as a way of thanking people who have stuck with it.
0: But it's it's not just um, the written word that you put out. There's there's uh, tips for scenery. Uh, there's these downloadable buildings which are free. Uh, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's I all. I mean, all it, free. it's it's just an incredible resource. And I have to say, Greg, you've got me hook, line, and sinker because I don't know if you've seen this or, or read it anywhere, but I was at the partisan show, the other partisan show, a couple of weekends ago, and I picked up a package from peter um for the entire order of battle for both sides of uh, the Antietam game uh, um, so the journey
2: that, begins for you sean the, yes. we, yeah
0: well uh, it's it's been a long journey greg to be honest i've gained the yeah. american civil war and everything from 2 mil up to uh, 54 mil actually but um it weighed in at um point. Two kilos. Now you don't do kilos in the states, do you? I don't think, but uh,
2: we we don't. But it just sounds heavy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it's nearly it's nearly seven pounds. Yeah, that is heavy. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that,
2: that's about as heavy as this puppy sitting there next to me.
0: So. <laughs> with with six mil figures, I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? But I've I've made a start on painting those, and the plan will be because I'm introducing this these rules to the club. That's the project for the rest of this year. Is to is to build up from first ball run, which I think is about a dozen bases aside. It's small, uh, yeah, it's very small. Up to uh, Antietam and then Gettysburg, obviously, is is the goal at some point as well. But um, it's going to be bringing hopefully many hours of enjoyment uh, to to my local club. So it's, it's this is a personal thank you, Greg, uh, for uh, Ultra Freedom. I think it's an incredible set of rules. The video support that you've put out. Uh, with the well the two Gettysburg games now actually. That's uh, right. That's yeah the the season two opener was uh, quite an experience by the looks of it.
2: That was, uh, that was a really fun project that we did. We got to collaborate with the American Battlefield Trust which is a, a big big non-profit organization here in the United States. I mean multi-million dollar grants that they get to try and preserve battlefields and uh, you know, having the opportunity to work with them, they got us access inside the Robert E. Lee headquarters, which is a restricted access building at the park. And I mean, we got to play our game in that headquarters building where he was, you know, briefly on July 1st. And just uh, the history is just like running through the building. It's a, like a gaming nirvana there. It was it was really cool.
0: It was a yeah. really, really,
2: really fun opportunity.
0: And how you involved... People across social media as well, and some command decisions, and the whole uh, involving non-gamers as well. I believe in that game just seemed a, a unique experience.
2: Yeah, we um, we thought that the trust was actually a really good partner for that because if we had we had for a while thought about doing the whole command decision thing where people could vote on some decisions as a way to you know have some interactivity and increase the buzz for the game. I, I thought it was a really good concept, but if we were to run that. Everybody responding to that was going to just be a wargamer. I mean, we run a wargaming channel, and it seemed like a great opportunity to maybe get some non-wargamers interested—just military history buffs, people who who love the Civil War, may not know anything about wargaming, never played a wargame. And working with the American Battlefield Trust is what got us the opportunity to reach those people because they have a huge social media following, and. Presumably quite a few of those people don't know anything about historical miniature wargaming. Uh, And the command decisions got them hooked, got them involved. And the hope on our end is that maybe a couple of those people will trickle over and say, hey, you know, what's this all about? I think finding new ways to get exposure for the hobby is the number one challenge that we have. And there are a lot of ways to go about it. I think there are a lot of creative things we could do. And this is one of
0: them. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. To get it out of these uh, these private clubs or out of the, sh- the war game shows, actually, because they're full of war gamers n- not non war gamers and getting them into that public space as well uh, and involving people outside of the hobby who you suspect may have a little bit of an interest because they're, 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 if you've got the history, then it's only a small step then, isn't it, into the hobby, I think.
2: I, I totally agree with you. And I mean, if you want room for optimism, just look at the like renaissance that's been going on in the last 10 years for board games. The board game business is booming right now. I mean, Absolutely. I think there used to be like when I was growing up, maybe even a little bit of a social stigma around board gaming, like uh, it's, it's not cool. It's kind of geeky. That, that's gone. Yeah. I mean, families, I mean, everybody is, is much more interested in board gaming today than they used to be. And and that's great. That's a great sign for us. Uh, that's a, that's a form of wargaming right there. Yeah, now yeah. we just need to introduce those people to miniatures, and we got to figure out how to do that.
0: Yes, we need to get the people off Call of Duty on their <laughs> Xbox and say, "This this is a real hobby."
2: <laughs> yes, yes. So there's the interest is there. I totally agree with you. The, there's yeah. there's there's a huge pool of people who are waiting to enter the hobby, but I, I just don't think they know about it. Yeah, sure.
0: Um okay just uh, finishing up on Rules Writing then Age of Hannibal which I mentioned uh, earlier that's that's by yourself as well isn't it Greg
2: Yes well I can't really take the full credit for Age of Hannibal the the Age of Hannibal is based on a game called, uh, from Chipco Chipco is a company that wrote a number of rule sets I mean 15 plus years ago Fantasy Battles was probably their most popular but they they had a number of different systems um uh, and we, in our club, always used Chipco Fantasy Battles, actually, a modified version of it, to play our Ancients games. And all, all sorts of Ancients games, uh, from, you know, ancient Greece through Rome, actually all the way up into sort of the Dark Ages. And I thought it was a great engine, and we always kept coming back to it. And Chipco, as a game company, just sort of faded out over the years, as many gaming companies do uh so we contacted them about two years ago and and you know one of the guys is still kind of active and we said hey you know could we basically use your engine make some tweaks to it i I send him you know a small royalty we don't make a lot of money off of this uh but the the core of the game is based on his game so i I can't take credit for having created it it's totally different from of freedom they are not at all related Uh, but our our club over the years has added a number of of revisions and and bolt-ons that i think make it a a really cool set of rules for uh yeah. you know, for ancient battles
0: what really attracted me to it was i don't know if it was the rules review or the refight of was trebia. It trebia, trebia trebia that's right but essentially you pitched it as a, an ancient a set of ancient rules that you don't have to play every week to be able to play and enjoy it so for instance it at my club the number of periods that we cover spans all of history but we might play an ancient war game once every four or five months
2: right i get it
0: (laughs) yeah so what what we don't want is is a rule set that is so complicated or complex that we come to play that game after four months of not playing it and they're scratching their heads thinking oh my goodness how does how does this work it's it's a sort of it's pitched at that level where you can pick it up pretty much instantly but not losing that period flavor
2: yeah well that's it's that's why we kept coming back to the chipco fantasy battles because like you you know it's it's not a period that we play all the time it, it may only happen once every few months and we, we tried a number of different rule sets you know armadi was one that i know that a couple guys really liked but nobody could remember how to play the game. <laughs> yeah, And we, we only had three <laughs> hours, and it was like, come on, like we just want to do something here. Well oh, fine, let's get Chipko out, you know, trot out that old rule set. I mean, that's easy. There's only two stats. There's a combat factor and a rally factor. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and there are some nuances and complexities that, that do, you know, I think give it a lot of replay value, but the basic core engine could not be any simpler. Uh, and that's important, I think, if if you don't play often. I mean, if you're if you're really into ancients and you play ancients all the time, I don't know that you're going to love this system. I mean, there are probably ones that are going to get you a lot more detail and flavor than this.
0: Yeah. But it's pitched at that sort of occasional gamer who wants that feel for the period of history and to play the game, to get that game completed within that two to three hour window that you might have on a, a, a midweek evening. Yes. Um. Yeah. So, uh, they're available through the same channel, are they?
2: I sell Altar of Freedom personally on the six millimeter ACW website. Yeah. Um, Age of Hannibal actually has at this point become a club project. Uh, many proceeds that we make from it go back toward Little Wars TV, um, and we sell that through the Little Wars TV website.
0: And what is that? LittleWarsTV.com? dot com or? You bet. Yeah. Oh, that's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs>
2: good guess. Good guess. <laughs>
0: Excellent, right So on Little Wars TV then Let's talk about that because I won't see you blush now When I, I, I say this to you But I'm sure you will blush Greg Because uh, you're a man of standing and <laughs> good taste. Oh, oh, oh you, but, you flatter me too much Sean. <laughs> I don't know about Yeah um, I, I pitch this When I talk about it to friends And if I'm out at shows And I talk about Little Wars TV I describe it as something that I quite happily watch as a scheduled program on mm. on the free to air TV here in, in the UK. So uh, we have the BBC. We've got BBC One, BBC Two. BBC Two is the more artsy um, documentary type channel, I guess. It was it would be something that I would happily sit and watch at 9 p.m. on a, on a Monday night on BBC Two. The production values are just outstanding. I, I can't believe that this is a hobby channel, put together by a few friends uh, and, and published on YouTube. It should be—it should be on mainstream TV.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's—we uh, we, we put a lot of work into it. We, it is a a lot of work to do. It uh, it takes a lot of time, and, and that is one of the challenges of the channel. Is as, as fun as it is. It, listen, it doesn't make any money. I mean, the guys—we only have so much hobby time, as you know. No. Yeah. Uh, and this, this eats into that available hobby time. So um, it, it it does take a lot, and that's probably why there aren't more guys doing it, I imagine. I wish there were, because I'd certainly watch those channels myself. But uh, we, we felt it was an important thing to do. We, we envisioned it only as a limited series. It was only going to be ten battles. That was it. We were going to make ten episodes. It was just going to be ten videos. And they would live on forever on YouTube and hopefully that would be our club's contribution to maybe raising the profile of the hobby and getting some nice-looking videos out there. But we ended up having so much fun making them that 10 videos in Season 1 became 70 videos, and then we just kept going. We just said, hey, let's, this is this is a lot of fun. I mean, I don't know how long it's going to go on, but as long as everybody's having a good time, why not?
0: <laughs> so uh, whose whose idea was it then to convert it from those individual separate channels or those personal channels into this leviathan that is now little wars tv
2: well i will i will take the original credit for it but i can only take half so not too long after i published those individual gettysburg and second manassas videos i knew somebody out in los angeles who was a television producer Um, And I think they were a fairly low-level producer, to be honest. I'm not going to pretend like I've got some amazing Hollywood contacts here. It's it's probably like a a low-rung guy. (laughs) Uh, And I pitched the concept of this to him as a television show. And we did get, like, one rung up the ladder from him, and then it it fizzled out and it never went anywhere. Um, And my vision for the show then was certainly different from what Little Wars TV has become now. But, you know, it was basically, it was going to be a, 30-minute show, a program on television where a bunch of guys get together and play a historical war game, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and and that didn't turn out, and I pretty much let the whole concept drop for years, and it was Steve at the club who has been in many of our videos. He's sort of the other main guy who's involved in the editing and the production side of this. Steve came to me, I guess it was three years ago now, and said, hey, you know what? Why don't, we, why don't we make some more of these? Why, why don't we maybe try to turn it into like a, like a YouTube channel? And I, I hadn't thought about it in all the intervening years. I, I guess I was so discouraged that uh, well, no one ever got back to me from Los Angeles. I shouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I was easily defeated. I was easily turned away. Uh, and when Steve brought it up again, I thought, ah, you know what? Screw those guys in Los Angeles. We'll do it.
0: What you do know? they know? <laughs>
2: yeah, what do they know? This will be so popular uh so we just decided the heck with it we'll, we'll do it ourselves we'll just do 10 of them and uh and we'll see what happens so steve steve gets the credit for bringing it up again and and really helping to drive this thing forward
0: but i I've, I've made one or two youtube channels previously which i will not advertise at all because they're in <laughs> oh, come on Sean. <laughs> no 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 uh this isn't false modesty either they are shocking um I watch uh, Little Wars TV, and the production quality is as if I'm watching a regular TV program. So how do you get that whole production together? Is it, have you got really expensive cameras and lighting? or what, What's no. the process?
2: No, you, you would be amazed if you saw what a low-level operation this is. Uh, actually, the, the second Manassas video that I had put out years ago before Little Wars TV was filmed entirely on my iPhone. wow yes and i edited it on my ipad
0: wow uh,
2: with a free editing software so (laughs) it's uh you do not need high level equipment
0: that's like pulling the curtain back isn't it i'm in the wizard of oz
2: (laughs) yes sorry to let you down At, at this point on little wars tv we're using dslr cameras uh so i mean they're they're designed for photography but they can take uh you know they can take bursts of video essentially Steve's got a Nikon, I've got a Canon. They're not expensive cameras. I mean, you could pick one up for several hundred dollars. Yeah. It's just a hobbyist kind of camera. Uh, the lighting, we, we just have like cheap floor lamps from Walmart. I mean, we, we have no fancy lighting here. We'd actually like to do a little bit better on the lighting front. Uh, audio is important though. Um, if, if anybody's thinking about doing a video, I would tell you, invest in a microphone. And they're not expensive. We use a Rode shotgun microphone. Um, I think it's called like the Rode Video Mic Pro, and it might have cost me. I think it was less than 200 bucks. Uh, so you you don't need anything fancy in order to do it. What you do need is time, and you do need practice. And those early videos that we did were pretty good practice. Um, mm-hmm. I watch YouTube videos that other people do on hobby channels. Some of them wargaming, and It's clear that people aren't putting a whole lot of thought or planning into the video. We do some light scripting, especially on the history sections, and we try to film as much as possible on a tripod so that the shots are stable. I mean, those are just like little tiny things that add a huge amount of production quality. You get a stable shot with decent audio. And if you can, try to have a rough outline of what you want to tell people so that you're not just rambling. That's that's really all there is to it. It's, it's not complicated, and I'm surprised that there aren't more people who are trying to do something like this.
0: Yeah, you're right. I think this isn't to knock any of the, the hobbyists out there that do put up hobby content, but many of them are plagued by shaky cameras, by poor audio, by poor lighting. And I think if you get those three things sorted... Then you're perhaps moving a step on onwards in the production, aren't you?
2: I think you're moving a couple steps onward uh, if you can if you can do that. Uh, the other thing that really bothered me before we started Little Wars TV, I attempted to watch other wargaming videos that were out there. There are no like huge channels, but uh, there are lots of little channels. I hate watching these like two or three hour battle reports that guys do where they film the whole freaking game like every die roll and it's like oh my god like i don't need to watch this i mean no one's gonna watch your three-hour video of every die roll of you with a shaky cam like panning across the table telling me what every unit is doing there are some hardcore gamers out there who are going to be interested in that and that's why those videos get several hundred views but we wanted to pitch little wars tv also to non-war gamers we wanted it to be an advertisement for the hobby where if you've never played a war game in your life you could watch. And those people aren't going to sit there for three hours. You, you'll be True. lucky if they'll sit there for 20 minutes.
0: True. How how long does a typical video take then from start to finish? So, for instance, the D-Day game that you've just right. published in two parts. My goodness. That, I drove to the other partisan show with a good friend of mine, aide from uh, my club. And that video uh, occupied quite a lot of the journey as we were discussing how great it was essentially but from concept to say right we're going to do all of d-day using this rule set right from that concept through to publishing how long is that taking you to do
2: it's it's a long time um, and we do try to plan the episodes out months in advance uh, and it does take months in this particular case we needed a lot of extra miniatures one guy in the club painted all of those Heroics and Ross miniatures. Oh, okay. uh, he, he had about half that amount, but he had to double his force in order to get that done. It, it took him months in order to do that. Um, it took me about a month to do the custom ground cloth that we used. Spent about a month writing the history portion of the script. We had to schedule a day to go out with some guys to film that. We always try to film our history portions at some location, we're not as lucky as you guys over in the UK where we've got access to all these great historical sites here in the U S you're a little bit more limited in the places you can go, but we try to come up with places, but you got to schedule a day to go out and drive somewhere a few hours, film the history portion. And then of course, you know, you got to play the game and the the D-Day game that you saw there. We probably only had, I don't know, between those two videos, 40 minutes of gameplay. Um, But that game took about seven hours in order to resolve. So we did one continuous session. We got there very early in the morning and we played for seven hours and finished the whole game. And then, of course, you've got the editing and the editing is the killer. I mean, that's that's kind of the backbreaking part because nobody here is a professional video editor. And Steve and I do almost all of the editing. We're not that great at it. So it takes a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Many, many, many hours to do the video editing
0: to be honest greg I, I assumed there was somebody within the industry that was doing these things so maybe <laughs> maybe maybe you're so close to it that you you can't appreciate just how good these things are but honestly there's, there's
2: nobody in the industry Sean, i can assure you of that it's, it's a, bu- a bunch of guys who the only editing experience we had before was like shooting home vacation videos you know
0: Well, listen, if the real estate business goes uh, belly up, then uh, you've got a future in video.
2: (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. Thank you. We've gotten better. I I will say, I mean, practice does help and I can go back and I can watch some of our early attempts and I can see how we have improved. So that is, uh, it takes less time now than it used to take, but it's still extremely time consuming. Um, So much so that. We are, I haven't, no one outside the club is aware of this, so you're getting some breaking news here, but uh, we are going to probably try and look to bring on a semi-professional video editor, somebody who has a background in this that could maybe help take a little bit of the load off of our plates, and uh, I think that would go a long way toward making this a, a sustainable project.
0: Yeah, and you've touched on something actually that I've found since launching this podcast, that there is only so much hobby time. I've, I've got an eight-year-old daughter. I've got a wife. I'm, I work full time. I've got a house to run. So there's only so much hobby time that I can, I can take in all good consciousness that takes me away from any of those things. And this podcast, I am absolutely loving uh, running it and, and editing. But it's not an inconsequential amount of time. It's, you know, this, this podcast will probably take me five or six hours to edit or sure. adding in the extra bits and i'm sure that's small fry compared to the work that and the hours that you put on in for little wars tv but even so it, it's time that i could be painting figures or yeah, playing the principle
2: games. is the same yeah yes. you're you're absolutely right i mean anybody who's involved in the creative content production side of our hobby whether they're doing a regular blog or a youtube channel or a podcast like you're doing here you're, you're stealing time from your hobby budget. You're yeah. reallocating it here. And, uh, you know, nobody's getting rich in this business, as, <laughs> as you well know. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, you you do this because you love it and yeah. because you love the hobby. And, you know, you, you you try to carry on as long as you can until you lose your passion for it.
0: Yes. Yes. So I think one of the unique parts of your videos, Greg, is is the history aspect of it. The videos are clearly founded in, in real history and are really informative around whatever the battle is you're playing or the period. Who writes that aspect of it? Is that, is that yourself? Is that a collaborative effort? Uh,
2: somebody gets the responsibility for each script. So one, one person will take the lead on each script. Uh, Steve and I do most of the scripts, but there are a number of guys in the club who have written episodes, actually. Tony wrote the D-Day episode. So he did all the writing and research for that script, uh, the Trebia episode, which we mentioned earlier for Ancients. Uh, Chow wrote that. Um, so we, we've we've gotten some contributions from guys in the club to do that, uh, which is, which is nice. It certainly takes you know, takes some time. Actually, the hardest part about writing the history portion, believe it or not, is trying to figure out how to make it short enough. Yeah. Everybody turns their draft in. I think when Chow turned in his draft of the Trevia script, it was like 12 pages. And just to give you some perspective on that, it needed to be less than half that amount. So it's, it's quite challenging to figure out how you're going to present the context of a battle, maybe get into it. We try to do a little bit of a debate between the two people about maybe some point of controversy in the battle. You've got to present the debate, and then you've got to segue into the war game. And you need to do all that in about six minutes, which six minutes goes by really quickly. It's funny when you read comments on YouTube about, uh, you know, all of our videos have comments from people saying, well, why didn't you mention this? Or, well, this this video is very inaccurate because you forgot to mention this. And it's like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry that we can't cover the history of D-Day in six minutes. Uh, <laughs> compromises have to be made. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It is it is quite difficult figuring out how you're going to do that in six minutes. <laughs> it's it's challenging. You know, there's, there's always people who comment and say they want more history or they want more gameplay. And it, it's a bit of a tough line to figure out what you're supposed to do. Uh, the number one comment we get on the videos is that people would like to see more of the game. They want to see guys making rolls. They want to see how a turn works, get into the mechanics a little bit more. And we've always been hesitant to do that because... The market for these videos, in our opinion, isn't just wargamers. So, how do you keep everybody happy? Certainly, wargamers are our number one core audience at this point. So, you got to keep them happy, but you want to try to appeal to people outside of that, and that's a bit of an awkward line to straddle. And I don't know that we've perfected that formula.
0: Uh, to be honest, I'm just incredibly supportive of, of how you do things at the moment, and I think that balance between showing the dice rolls and and the movement of the figures and keeping it concise enough so that interest is maintained throughout the length of the video is a tough one. But for me, you're right, I I can't sit and watch a two or three hour battle report where every dice roll and every figure move is recorded because I just haven't got that time and possibly not the interest either to last through two or three hours. My feeling is I'd, I'd like to be in the room and just seeing these games played out. But how you present it for me, you've got that perfect balance. It's, it's that half an hour that covers the history uh, and covers the game. And it's those talking heads where you, your players go off to one side and, and talk about the tactics about how something's gone and then what they're going to plan for the next few moves. That's the perfect balance for me. and That's the perfect package.
2: Well, thank you yeah we we spent certainly a lot of time thinking about how we wanted to present it and i i agree that it's a it's a good formula um there's always room for improvement so we're we're always looking at ways that we could tweak it a little in this sort of second season we're trying to pare back the history very minorly maybe by like 30 seconds to 60 seconds less history and maybe devote that time to explaining a little something about the mechanics, maybe just giving you like one piece. Oh, here's how the command and control system works. Um, Just trying to change the balance a little bit. But overall, I think the formula is get it it in under 30 minutes. I think that's a good attention span for people on YouTube.
0: But what you're doing now, you're doing the rules review, aren't you? We've done it for
2: everyone, and that was intended for the hardcore war gamer. Like, okay, sorry we didn't give that to you during the game, but if you really are interested, here's 20 minutes where we really just pull these rules apart and give you a lot more detail.
0: And, And what's interesting about that, Greg, I think, is that there's very little sycophancy around what you're saying. You do not pull any punches, do you? On those reviews. <laughs> yeah, we
2: we've we've taken some criticism for that uh, as we knew that we would any uh, anytime that you we debated actually before doing these rule reviews. Should we score the rules? That was a big discussion. Should we just talk about the rules or should we try to give scores in some kind of objective way? And that was a I, I don't know that we made the right choice, but now that we've made it, we're going to stick to it. Uh, and anytime that you score something as subjective as a rule system you know you're, you're going to open yourself up to some criticism and some people disagreeing and actually I, I always thought that was a good thing that would encourage dialogue and conversation but uh yeah, we, we, we we try to give an honest and unvarnished opinion um there are some rule sets we've played in this club that we really really have disliked and to be honest rather than just bash them we just don't review them uh I think Sand that's a kinder approach <laughs>
0: I think that's an important thing actually and I do promote this podcast as a podcast of positivity so if there's something that I don't particularly like or enjoy I'm not going to talk about it on the podcast rather than talk about it and then have to take a negative approach or or to bash the rule set or the figure range or whatever I'd rather not talk about it because at the end of the day that product those rules those figures or whatever are somebody's baby aren't they and they have put hours of love and attention into developing that and okay I might not like it but that doesn't mean nobody's going to like it exactly. and I think yeah and I think how, how you do it actually you, you've always got two people there haven't you so there's quite often a difference of opinion
2: we do. We do try to do that. And we did consciously try to keep it to two people. I've, I've watched some rule reviews and, and listened to podcasts of rule reviews where there are three or four voices involved. And I, I think it gets to be too many. Um, if you keep it to two guys who can have a steady back and forth, I think that's easier to follow. And, and it's more fun than having one guy. As you know from your podcast, you know, you just sitting here talking into the microphone isn't the most interesting thing in the world.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. I'm sure you're a very interesting guy. (laughs) (laughs) No, listen, I can send myself to sleep. Don't you worry about that. Uh, But I I thought you were really brave in putting your own uh, baby up there with um, Ultra Freedom and uh, Age of Hannibal.
2: Oh, thanks. You know, there have been complaints, certainly. You know, Alter of Freedom's not a perfect rule set, and if I if I ever went back and rewrote it, which I have no plans to do, uh, there are things that I would change as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you put it out there and be, and be as honest as you can about it. There's there's no perfect set of rules, and, and that's great. That's fine.
0: Absolutely. So there does seem to be quite an emphasis on 6 mil gaming, certainly not to the exclusion of other scales, but is 6 mil gaming... Very popular in your club,
2: it is, um, and it never used to be. It it, it took over ten years for six millimeter to really filter its way into the club. It first did with micro armor GHQ, which is actually technically I think one two fifty eighth scale, um, slightly different from six millimeter. But um, we we did a lot of micro armor games at one point, uh, and then eventually uh, Alter of Freedom became our first um, true foray into six millimeter gaming with Bacchus and since then wow it has it has proliferated like wildfire I mean we now do a lot of periods in six millimeter much more than just ACW I mean uh, it's, it's become one of the most popular if not the most popular scales at the club and I think there are there are lots of reasons for that one of them is that it takes up less table space Another is that I think it looks really damn cool <laughs> yeah. uh, and see, yeah. cost is a huge one. There's a lot of guys in our club who've got, you know, very limited hobby budgets. They need to choose how they're going to spend their dollars wisely. And if you can field an entire army that looks really good on the table for a hundred bucks, a whole army, it's kind of a no brainer.
0: Yes. And they still look fantastic, don't they?
2: They do. If you, if you paint them right, and And that's a whole separate discussion, the painting um, if, if you If you paint them right, they look really, really sharp on the table. Um, and when I first started painting six millimeter ACW, they looked terrible, and I hated it. I, I didn't know how to paint them. in fact i I don't know if I've admitted this to anyone before, but I sent half of my figures out to a, a professional painter i I'd never done it before. I was so frustrated with trying to paint these guys. They looked miserable, and I hated it, and they were taking forever, and I thought, you know the hell with this. I'm never going to get these guys on the table. So I found a guy online, and I sent him half of my figures. And it took him almost a year, but he mailed them back, and they looked great. And I actually copied his painting style. Once I was able to study the way he painted them up close – I stole all of his techniques, and I painted the other half of the figures. They looked great, and now it's my favorite scale to paint. Now now I find it hard to paint 28 millimeter.
0: Yeah, I'm hitting that same sort of realization, really, and I've got a blog that runs us alongside uh, the podcast, and I talk about how can you paint anything so big, which is a yeah. counter to uh, Peter yes. Berry's argument that, He's always faced with this argument, how, how can you paint anything so small and you'll send me blind and I'm too old and my eyes aren't good enough. So these American Civil War figures that I've, I've just bought and are sitting just across from where I am now, I've got I've got the Union Confederates to fight the Battle of Antietam and at the scale that ultra freedom is. That's roughly well, it's over 100,000 men, right. 70,000 against 50,000, something like that. How could I ever do that in 28 mil in my lifetime? I would have to, I would have to not game any other period or any other scale, probably for the next two or three years or four, or five years to do that in, in in twenty eight mil and in fifteen mil it'd take me twice as long. So for me, that that's where the beauty of six mil is. That and that video that you did of Antietam is the is the sole inspiration. For me to take this project on and really start this podcast as well, it's a huge influence on the start of this podcast because I thought, Oh, wow, that's
2: cool. I'm glad to hear
0: that. That is genuine. This, this is. Um, I looked at that video and I thought six by four table to play the Battle of Antietam, representing over a hundred thousand men on the table, where I can occupy three, four, five players and play the Battle of Antietam in a reasonable length of time. That is my. Hobby goal, and that's what ultra freedom provides. And I thought, well, that's six mil, then that's the way for me to go. And
2: oh, you're, I don't think you're alone in that. I, I I have seen, you know, in our club, six millimeter become more popular, and I've been watching it become more popular uh, in other clubs in our area, and certainly online. I've seen, you know, a higher presence, and, and Peter at Vacus has has a lot to do with that. He, he's driving it on the manufacturing end, but uh, I think there's a lot of people who are coming to the exact same conclusion that you and I did, which is that you know there's a desire to do big battles. There always has been. That's always appealing to war gamers. Pick your period; doesn't matter. You want to do the biggest battle and the most famous battle that you can. Yeah. How can you do it? Uh, and for years, everyone tried to do it in 28, and then they tried to do it in 15, and you know here we are trying to do it in six. And I think it's a great a great compromise.
0: Yeah. Th- and this isn't to decry 28mm figures or any other scale. Each scale and each range of figures have, have got the, absolutely their own place. You know, the Chain of Command games or the Bolt Action or Disposable Heroes in 28mm looked fantastic. I thought the Battle of Foy game that you put on was tremendous. But if I want to play it, the whole of a battle then I'm, I'm not doing that in 28 mil. I'm doing it in 6 mil. <laughs> yeah,
2: we're, we're, we're with you on that. Uh, yeah. And we play in other scales, of course. I think we yes. play war games in our club in every scale. And like you said, they all, they all have their, their purpose. And yeah. uh, the only question is, how long is it going to take you to get your force on the table? If you only need a platoon of 28mm figures, that's doable. Yeah. You know, In a couple months, even if you don't have a lot of painting time, you can get that done. Yes. Um, and it's a great scale for a platoon-level game. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay then. Uh, Little Wars TV. Then um, it's an ongoing concern by the sounds of it. Um, I was very pleased to see it come back with season two. What, have you got the whole of season two planned out?
2: It is definitely planned. It is mostly filmed, but there are still some episodes that are yet to be filmed, and that, uh, we are we, we have everything laid out in a in a timetable. So we uh, we should be wrapping up season two um, around uh, March of next year is when we will be out of content for season two.
0: Oh, that that sounds great actually that's another six months isn't it of uh, content i've got to look forward to i've, yeah, I've got not-
2: plenty more videos coming
0: good good i've noticed there's a teaser i think it's on the little wars tv website that the next episode is uh, naval
2: it is yes we're doing a huge age of sale game for the next episode, looks really really cool. Uh, Steve and our club built these flashing smoke markers, um, where they sort of pulse and flash at irregular intervals to look like cannon fire, oh, and uh, they they look really really neat. You need something like that on an Age of Sail game because you know <laughs> what terrain is there. There's no <laughs> there's a blue cloth on a piece of uh, on a table. Yeah. So yeah yeah you need you need something to jazz that up. And then uh, actually the uh, Give you some more breaking news here. The, the episode that will come out after Trafalgar, our next episode, will be, uh, will be a huge six-millimeter battle.
0: Oh, uh, uh, wow. It's,
2: it's, it's, it's been a lifelong dream of Steve's to do this battle, and uh, he's painted thousands of six-millimeter figures for this. And uh, it's, it's going to be quite the show. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that one.
0: Oh my goodness, Greg! You've just made my day. (laughs) Yeah,
2: it's a whole new period. It's a new. It's a new period that's never been featured on the channel before. It's a bit of a niche period, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, it'll be an instantly recognizable battle. Any history buff is going is going to know this one, and um, it's it looks great in six millimeter. We had to do it in that scale just given the size of the battle.
0: When can we expect to see that episode?
2: Uh, we're right now. We're we're trying to be on a schedule where a new episode is released every month, and then we we populate the rest of the month with the rules review, a terrain tutorial, maybe something else. Um, so the month of September would be the the naval battle, and then hopefully the the month of October you'll see uh, you'll see the big six mill battle.
0: I cannot wait for that, and uh, I'm very tempted to ask you what the battle is. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put you on the spot like that, uh, but I'll, I'll wait along with all of your other viewers uh, with uh, excitement to see see what that is. That's, that's, yeah. that's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it will be a good one.
0: Yeah. So longer term then for Little Wars TV, where do you see it going?
2: We don't know is the short answer to that question. Um, we're hoping to get through most of season two before we have a real big sit down conversation at our club and discuss what the future of the channel is. Uh, I think a lot of guys would like it to continue, myself included, but if it continues past season two, there are going to have to be some changes to make it a little bit less work on our end. And and one of those big changes is something you and I talked about earlier, maybe getting some help on the video editing front, because that is the most work. And if we could find somebody to help with that, uh, then I could see this going on for a long time. Uh, If we can't find someone to help with it, then I don't know, maybe maybe we'll change away from a season-based format and there will just be like, you know, a couple episodes a year that come out when we can do them. Um, I I don't know what the future is going to look like, except that we're still having fun doing it. We'd like to continue. And I think it's a really good thing for the hobby. uh, If we can find a way to continue.
0: That that sounds fantastic. It's entirely understandable for the reasons we've already discussed that um, it To get some of your hobby time back is important. I know it's a team effort, but even so, it's a big commitment, I understand. All I can say as a consumer of the product is I I really hope it continues for as as long as possible, because this is no joking aside, it is incredible work that you put out there, Greg, uh, and, and the rest of your team, and long may it continue.
2: Thank you. I I appreciate that, Sean.
0: Yeah, not not at all. we're gonna try. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um okay. Um what about your own hobby at the moment then? What's on what's on your table? What are you painting? What are you planning?
2: Oh this is this is a really dirty secret here. Uh <laughs> what's on what's on my table right now? Uh I shouldn't even admit this on a podcast. It's I not historical. It's I not knew
0: historical. I knew you were going to say that, Greg. I knew it. I don't know why. I just had a, uh, a vision that you were going to say something non-historical.
2: I hate to admit it. It kills me. The other guys in the club are going to just rip on me mercilessly because I'm I'm the historical Nazi in our club. You know, I'm the one <laughs> who insists that we only game historicals in our club. Yeah. Uh, but I am actually painting up a Star Wars Legion force.
0: Okay. Oh, I'm a big, I'm a big
2: Star Wars fan. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and those miniatures are so beautiful. Um, I'm, I'm in the midst of painting Stormtroopers right now, which are a nightmare to paint. I hate painting these white oh, miniatures. We, it's just white. Oh, it's <laughs> so hard. Have? It's so hard to paint white. It is.
0: It is. I, oh I'm going God. to I'm going to give you a pass on this, Greg, actually, because it is Star Wars, and who doesn't like Star Wars?
2: It is a little historical, isn't it? Like, yeah. You know, 70s, so yeah. you know, that's that's fairly historical.
0: Oh, well, that's living memory for me, Greg. <laughs>
2: oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry to make you feel old.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do a little bit. It was my birthday the other day, oh. I feel incredibly old. <laughs> Sorry about that, man. But, uh,
2: Yeah, that's what's that's what's on the painting table right now. I, I usually have a couple of projects that I'm working on at once so that you can bounce back and forth and keep up your interest. So, my uh, my historical project on the table is I'm trying to finish off some 15 millimeter winter Germans. Um, so that's you know battle Battlefront miniatures, very very pretty miniatures. Very nice.
0: And, uh, just one last thing, if you'll indulge me, I, uh, a book recommendation to close of out. Of course,
2: the show. yes, book recommendation. So you and I are both American Civil War fans, so of course it's going to be American Civil War recommendation. Yeah. Um, my favorite book on the period, and it provided a huge amount of inspiration for Alter of Freedom. And I have read this book several times. It's like a regular for me to go back to. Is the uh, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. If, if if people have you read it?
0: Yes, it's on my Kindle. Actually, I've I've got it. Yes.
2: I've told many people to read this book, and and sometimes the reaction is, "Oh, you're know, like really like that?" Sounds kind of dry. It is not dry yeah. at all, and it is it is written in excellent it's basically modern prose yeah it sounds like he wrote the book today like it's not full of this flowery victorian language that a lot of these civil war memoirs were i, I read a ton of memoirs when i was researching for of freedom and oh my god some of them are unreadable yes. they're just they're just terrible um and grants is not he uh, it's modern prose and he is totally willing to open himself up to criticism He's not scapegoating other people. It's just a really refreshing read. And the entire memoir is really about his service in the American uh, American Civil War and the Mexican-American War. He doesn't really get into the, the presidency or, or anything like that. So, And anyone who hasn't read it, give it a read. It's, it's probably the single best military history memoir that I've ever read.
0: Yeah, I think his, his presidency uh, wasn't... Uh... It uh, was beset with problems, wasn't it, his presidency? But uh, he, he
2: probably didn't want to talk about that. Yet. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. But his it, service in uh, in the Mexico War and uh, the the Civil War was uh, of, certainly of interest. Greg, that's been fantastic. I know that you've got a puppy uh, probably dancing around your legs now and and uh, looking at you for food or, or wanting to go outside for a little. Yeah, bit.
2: I'm, I'm hoping he doesn't pee on me here to celebrate the end of the interview. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Let's hope we can get away before that happens. But, uh, yeah. but I, I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, I've, I've been a listener of your podcast, and I'm always looking for new podcasts, and there really aren't that many good ones. Yeah. In the in the wargaming space, there's a lot of just, like, empty rambling, and I love that you're doing interviews, uh, you know, that have structure, and it's, uh, it's, it's a great listen, and I, I encourage you to continue because uh. – I, I drive a lot for my job, and having a podcast in the car is something I can listen to, but I can't watch a video in the car, so sure. please uh, please carry on, because this is this is my favorite scale in a game, and it, it could use the attention that you are uh, trying to give it.
0: I appreciate that, Greg. I'm learning the technology as I go, so the sound levels occasionally uh, go off a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm doing my best to uh, to to get up to speed with uh, the production. And yeah, so hopefully, hopefully it will continue. Greg, it's been absolutely wonderful to speak to you on this. Uh, well, for you, a Sunday morning, it's now to 10 to three in the afternoon for myself, but uh, <laughs> I- I'm heading off now to paint some of those six mil American Civil War for my entire game.
2: <laughs> Good. Well, we, As the project continues, be sure to send us some pictures. I'd, I'd love to see some photos of the project as it unfolds. It, uh, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun for you guys.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right, Greg, I shall let you go and uh, hopefully speak again soon.
2: Very good. Thank you, Sean.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. It was great to chat to a fellow content producer and hear his take on things. It always amazes me that though separated by an ocean and several time zones, all gamers are essentially the same the world over. We all have a passion for the hobby that can at times be difficult to express to anyone outside of the hobby. And when you get a chance to chat to like-minded souls, it's difficult to know when to stop. So thank you, Greg, for taking the time out of your day to speak to me. I certainly feel as though we could have chatted for a lot longer which really means only one thing. I'll have to get Greg back on in the near future for him to keep us up to date with the hobby stateside. Hobby progress has been slowed by my daughter's birthday but I have just today managed to crack on with painting one of two German divisions that I need for my Great War spearhead mum's project. With the British done, I now have one remaining German division to complete before starting to think about the scenery. To be honest, I've got loads of ideas about how I'm going to represent the map from the Great War spearhead rulebook, but I've not actually put any of them into practice yet. One thing is for sure, it'll be good experience for my Tietval game at the Joy of Six next year. I've also taken advantage of the fact that Bacchus shopping cart has reopened. And I've ordered the last couple of bits for my Napoleonic Austrians, them being Infantry and Helmet, Vanwehr and Jaegers. That should be enough for now before I start to look at other orders of battle. Artillery will most likely be, be the next purchase, but I'm determined to get these done and played with before spending any more on them for now. I've also made a start on my Rebs from Tiertum. Just a couple of brigades done at the moment, but fairly soon... I'll be having a big push to get these done. The aim is to play Antietam sometime around Christmas. That may be too optimistic with Mons and the Austrians on the go at the same time, but we'll see how I get on. Okay, that's enough for now. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so via email at godsownscale at com or on Twitter at godsownscale. Check out my blog as well, which is dot 2blogspotcouk Okay, so until next time, play nice and keep talking about sex. away
1: to do his with a smile on his lips and his left hand and fist upon his shoulders, right and gay. As the train moved out, he sang, Remember me to all the birds. Then he wagged his paw and went away to war, shouting out these pathetic words Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, I'm the so dear baby, dear, from your eye. Though it's hard to pass, I know, I know, I'll. Single the death the cry, don't sigh. There's a silver in the sky. Bonsoir, old sin, curio, chin, chin, goodbye. At the concert, down at Q, some dressed in blue. At the yeah. Lady Lee, who had turned 83, sing all the old, old songs she knew. Then she made a speech and said, I look upon you boys with pride. And for what you've done, I'm going to kiss each one. Then they all grabbed their sticks and cried, Goodbye, goodbye. Oh, and the dear baby dear from your eye. Throwing hard too fast I know, I know. I feel because i just go. Don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky Bonsoir, old sing, cheerio, chin, chin Now boo-toot-a-loo, loo Little private Patrick saw He was the prisoner of war Till the hung with the gun Called his teeth dog for fun Then Patty punched him on the door Right across the barbed wire fence the German dropped the dear, oh dear. All the wives gave away and had a hooray, as he ran for the Dutch frontier. Good night, good night. Oh, I'm a dear, baby, dear, from the eye. Though it's hard, too hard, I know, I know. I see, nickel the dead to go, don't cry, don't cry. There's a silver lining in the sky. But my oh, 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 oh,